I guess it would be an understatement to say that we love our football around here. <laughs> now, I've been, you know, thinking about this spiritual uh, unity, walking in unity about this sermon to help us with our spiritual health, and I wanted to wait till after the Ozark Nixa game, right, <laughs> to talk about this because I saw some of the love that you have for football. Of course, I think what I noticed is you just wanted to win, uh, regardless if it was volleyball on Thursday or if it was football on Friday night. We, we, we know that we love football. If it's Pop Warner, I don't know what you call it around here when you start off. When I was a kid, we called it Bucky League because Bucky Plyler was over uh, the, the rec center. So we said, you play Bucky League football. And so there are all kinds of names we use for it, but it's, it's fascinating to watch it. We think about the offense and the defense and the special teams and how they all come together with a, with, with a coordinated and unified emphasis to do one thing, and that's to win the game, right? That's the goal of why they're playing. It's amazing to see how each member of the team brings their own particular skills and their talents to the position that they play and for the right reason. If you want to destroy a football game, let everybody play for themselves or a basketball game or whatever. Consider though how tragic and also how comical it would be that it's supposed Alex Smith played nose guard. Doesn't he quarterback for Kansas City? Some of y'all want him to play nose guard, right? <laughs> But suppose he was playing nose guard, and suppose uh, Justin Houston. I mention him because he played for the Dogs, right? And he's your best defensive player, and he's not playing right now. See, I know, I know this stuff, right? But suppose he played quarterback, a nose guard playing quarterback. Just think about how comical all this would be. Um, but what is true for a team sport is so much more true for, are truer for the church of the living God. Because football is not going to last forever. I hate to hurt your feelings. And it's really not going to matter at all. As a matter of fact, none of the stuff we holler so much for is going to matter that much. Right? But the church of the living God is going to last forever. It's the only entity in the world that's going to last forever. It's the church of the living God. So... Sports are going to mean absolutely nothing, and they really, really probably mean nothing now. But the fact of the matter is, the church is going to live forever. So when the church of the living God and its members are in the right position, doing the right job, and for the right reason, you might just win your community to Christ and ultimately bring glory to the King, which is why this church is here to begin with. Now, that is Paul's emphasis when you get to Ephesians chapter 4. He is concerned about the church being in unity. Because God knows that there's no way to bring Him glory if we don't maintain unity as a church. And furthermore, he's going to continue to teach on that. In chapter 4, he talks about maintaining unity, using your spiritual gifts, and maturing as a believer. Those are three Things that are so vital to any church body, if you're going to ultimately bring the God, bring our God glory, of course, that is mentioned in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now unto him 
who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above anything we could ever ask or think, according to Him, be power in the church through Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. So Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to pick up our reading. And we're going to talk about church health, walking in unity. The first three chapters contain amazing truths, profound prayers, and God-glorifying doxologies. What an incredible uh, book the Holy Spirit of God has given us through the Apostle Paul with what's here. And throughout the entire section of the first three chapters, there's only one imperative command. One imperative command through three chapters. And notice where it is. Chapter 2. Are you in Ephesians? Did you bring your Bible? Now, would you go to a football game without a football? How much more important is it to bring your Bible to the church? Hold them up real high. Let me see them. Some of you got iPads. I see them going up. That's okay. As long as you're looking at the Word, right? Listen to chapter 3. Verse 11, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 11, I'm getting a running start. Therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, meaning you were lost, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is, by, which is made in the flesh by hands. Here it is again, remember, that's the one imperative command found in all three chapters. Listen, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant promises, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. What a verse. Who has made us both one and has broken down... In his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, I want you to think about that in your mind. It, this is based, everything we're going to see beginning in chapter 4 is based on you remembering what Christ has accomplished for you. It is designed, chapters 1 through 3 are designed to give you a foundation. What you believe is so vitally important. So that's your foundation, but beginning in chapter 4 and moving through the rest of Ephesians, Paul is going to take that astonishing theology in 1 through 3, and he wants it to be applied to your life. So we may think of it this way. In 1 through 3, Paul is giving us doctrine. In 4 through 6, he's giving you your duty as a child of God. In 1 through 3, he's giving you your creedal information. And then in 4 through 6, it's supposed to be what your conduct looks like. In 1 through 3, it's the gospel of Jesus explained to you. And in chapters 4 through 6, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ applied in our lives. And folks, you can't separate the two. Don't tell me you believe in Ephesians 1 through 3 and you're not living the gospel life in 4 through 6. So, Paul gives us this incredible book and he wants us as the central verb in 1 through 6, the major thing he wants us to concentrate on is found in verse 3. It's the, it's the phrase that drives the text. Listen, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is the main thing. And notice, after he gives all this great and glorious theology, the first thing he turns around and says is, we need to maintain the unity in the church. Just think of all the things that Paul could have brought out. Sexual immorality, you need to abstain from it. Yes and amen. Right? All kinds of other sins he could have brought out. 
things that would hurt the church. But the ethics of unity is not something that we readily think about, is it? We, we think about all the other sins, but disunity is not something that we think about. But folks, I'm telling you, if we don't have unity in this church surrounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we're not going to do anything to honor our Father. So unity is important. The first ethical thing that Paul begins to explain to us after the most incredible three chapters anywhere found in the Bible, the first thing he says, now maintain the unity. Let's read this text. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. If you want to stretch, let's read. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. If you'd like to stand and honor the reading, you can. But here's what it says. I therefore. If you see the word therefore in the Bible, what are you supposed to ask? What's it there for? Right? It's there because it's building on everything he said in the first three chapters. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Twofold. He really was in jail. It's a prison epistle. But he's also saying this. I'm a prisoner of Christ. I'm owned by him. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience. Bearing with one another in love, major phrase, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now he's going to tell you what that faith looks like. What brings about the unity. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. To God be the glory. You may be seated. Let's pick up this word, worthy. The word worthy is taken from a Greek word that means an axiom. So, if you're going to live worthy, axiom means to put the same amount on the other side to balance the scales. Now, I know that we could really never balance the scales of valuing what Jesus did on Calvary for us this side of heaven. But when you see Jesus, it will. When you see him face to face... It'll balance out in your mind how much you should have valued him. But the word axiom means to, to pick up this, say, right side, this slack on the left or whatever, and balance out the understanding. So you should be valuing the person and work of Jesus so much and the peace that he brought to you at Calvary. And that scale is coming back up so that what he did for you, your response is equaling that. Does that make sense to you? That worthy call that God has given you, and the word call means effectual call. In other words, when God issues this, it's going to affect, the call is going to be accomplished in your life. In view of all that, as one writer says, Christ has done so much for me that the rest of my life is a P.S. to his great work. It's what all of our lives is supposed to be. Now, to the main division... A healthy church will be marked by spiritual unity. If we're a healthy church, we're going to be marked by spiritual unity. And the apostle is going to give it to you in two ways. What is it that brings this unity to us? It's going to be through Christ-like conduct. And it's also going to be through, according to the word here in our text, we must be united through our gospel confession. So, what does real spiritual unity look like? It looks like Jesus. It is Christ-like conduct. But it is also, according to the Word, uh, 
a unity that comes about because of our gospel confession. What we all see together and hold so dear is our gospel confession. So we're going to move down through this text and learn that. First, we're united together by Christ-like conduct. Did you see that in verses 2 through 3? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity. Now, I used this phrase, and I called it Christ-like conduct for a purpose. Because nobody exemplified these virtues more than the Son of God. Right? When you think of all four of those things, you are looking at Christ-like conduct. Remember, Paul is emphasizing relationships. So relationships are important. That's why when people say, I'm saved, but I don't want to go to church, you ought to begin to question their salvation immediately. If people say, well, I'm saved, but I don't need the people of God. Folks, there's no such thing as believing in Christ without belonging to a body. It is absolutely, categorically impossible in the Bible. Paul moves directly to relationships. You don't have to be forbearing, you don't have to be patient, and you don't have to be gentle if you're never around anybody. Right? How can you think that you can live out the relationship, the, the, the vertical, of course, they think the vertical's fine, but the vertical affects the horizontal dimension of what it means to be a, a child of God. So think for a moment about the imagery of the body. It's a family. We are the household and, and God is our father. And those relationships are so important, but they're also fragile. I'm a pastor. I've been one almost 25 years in some form or fashion. I know relationships in the church are fragile. A lot of people wear their feelings on their shoulder and dare you to knock them off, right? And we've all been down that road. We've all had those difficulties. But they're fragile. And since they're fragile, relationships have to be nurtured. Don't miss this. This is what it means to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Remember the axiom the balancing of the scales, if you're really valuing the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will value your relationships on earth. You, are, you will value the relationships that you have in this church. And no one exemplified these virtues more than the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you know the kenosis passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, that the Lord Jesus Christ did not consider it robbery to be equal with his Father, but made himself of no reputation, coming in the form of a servant. And then let this mind be in you that was also in him. He didn't consider his equality with the Father something to be grasped. But he made himself. He came, took on skin, human skin. That's his humiliation, the addition of humanity. And he did all this for us. Think about gentleness. Jesus said, come to me for I am gentle. Think about patience. It was unparalleled. Think about his love for us that he demonstrated on Calvary so vividly. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is our peacemaker, chapter 2, verse 14. So all of these are in Christ himself individually. And if you bear his nature, those things ought to be in you. Think about them for a moment. What, what does humility mean? Do you see the text? Christ-like character. Without humility, there'll never be unity in this church. Right? Humility or lowliness is the correct self-evaluation. For unity to exist, humble, selfless, yes, Baptist people must look for the good of others and not themselves. Uh, Philippians, 
2.3, let, let each esteem others higher than yourself. So this humility, by the way, humility is that grace that when you know you've got it, you've just lost it. Right? It really is. If somebody's walking around, I'm so humble, I'm just a humble person, liar, liar, pants on fire, right? You can tell quickly they're not a humble person. Interestingly, the term humility is very uncommon in early Greek literature. You know why? Because humility was looked down upon. The thing that everybody wanted to be was prideful. They, they wanted you to have an ego and to have pride, and if you showed humility to them, that showed weakness. Now, that's true in our culture today, right? People who are really humble, they don't get too far in this world because uh, our mentality is exalt yourself, pamper yourself, think about yourself. Well, according to 319, it says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In essence, if you've got the fullness of God, then you will be a humble person which is totally opposite of what our world says in America. And you say, well, I like the American way, but I'm sorry, that's not the Bible way. Right? Uh, the, the American way uh, is rarely the Bible way. So humility, how about the next virtue, gentleness? Well, it's really translated meekness, and it means to be a man or woman under control. It is power under control. Don't mistake meekness for weakness or gentleness for meekness. Moses was called the meekest man on the face of the earth. But that's the same meek man that went before Pharaoh and said, You will let my people go. Right? So understand that meekness is not weakness. Gentleness, according to the Bible, if you look in Galatians 5, gentleness is actually a fruit of the Spirit of God. So humility and gentleness... A man or woman of God under control of the Spirit. How about patience or long-suffering? Well, this has to do exactly with what we were mentioning a while ago. In order to be long-suffering, you have to be around people. In order to have this kind of patience, it's relationships. Now, in, in the United States, we have little, if no, patience. We want it our way and quick, right? We want the Happy Meal. We want it quick. As a matter of fact, for some of you, the microwave is too slow. <laughs> we are not blessed. We, that's not a virtue that we think about too much. As a matter of fact, in a lot of situations, my wife will tell you, I'm not a really, really patient person. In some ways, I am, but in a lot of ways, I'm not. But the fact is, we need to pause and meditate on this because this word, case in point, Moses was a patient person. Because think about all the dealings with the Lord. But he was not long-suffering with the people. As a matter of fact, he got ticked off, and God says, you better speak to the rock. And Moses instead struck the rock, and God killed him. So Moses was patient with God, but not long-suffering with people. This is where the rubber hits the road in the congregational life of First Baptist Church Ozark. How patient and long-suffering are you with people who were bought by the blood of Christ just like you? How patient and long-suffering are you? This is what the church looks like when it walks in unity. We will suffer long with people, which is the truest evidence of death to self. Folks, it takes dying to self to suffer with people. 
If, 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 if you're number one and your agenda, you're not going to want to suffer long with people. You won't do it because you're the most important person. So you won't suffer long. And then here's the fourth thing. Bearing with one another in love. You know what that means? It basically means putting up with each other in love. Peter says it this way. Love covers a multitude of sins. This is the only way marriage works, by the way. My wife puts up with me, with love. If I had to put up with myself, one of us would have to die. (laughs) Right? And it's true of you. Just think about that. That's what marriage is. We make a choice to be forbearing in love with one another. So this is the way a relationship works. By the way, I, she puts up with me, and I put up with her. No amens? I heard some of the men say, yeah. elbow their Yep. This is the way relationships must work in the body of Christ. Now, verse 3 is pivotal. We're talking about, we're talking about character, right? Well, verse 3 is pivotal. He says, diligently and earnestly hold the unity of the spirit of bond of peace. So we're doing this eagerly. In other words, this is no peripheral thing. This is so vitally important. When you get to verse 3, you've got all these characteristics of Christ. Understanding that we must vigorously do everything in our power to maintain this unity. Now, obviously, where does the unity come from? It comes from the Spirit of God who gave you life. That's where it started. And, and in verses 4 through 6, we'll talk about in the moment in, this, in a few moments. But the Holy Spirit is the one who not only gives you the unity, but energizes the unity that we have in this church. But then it says that it's in the bond of peace. So the way you see that is, the bond that binds us together in this text, like a steel band, is peace. It can be translated like this. Diligently keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond, which is peace. Grammatically, that's closer. The bond is peace. The steel band that that binds this church together must be peace. Now let's ask what that peace is. If we're going to zealously and jealously and earnestly seek for unity and peace, we have to stop and ask. Folks, you ought to zealously and earnestly pursue unity as much as you pursue truth in the Word. That's how important this unity is. By the way, Jesus Christ is our bond of peace. Now this is not an exhortation to a church floating around somewhere off another place. This is an exhortation for you and me in this body right here where we are. This is the local body of believers. We're not talking about an invisible membership. It's pretty easy for you to sit on a pew and say, well, I'm at peace with a Christian over in Africa. Or I'm at peace with a Christian watching Chuck Stanley on TV every morning. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a real bona fide unity and peace that we know in this auditorium or in this local body of believers. In this community of faith called First Baptist Church, Ozark, this is what we're speaking of. We lived, think about this piece, you and I, we lived in the reality of separation and alienation. What is the root of all separation and alienation? It's sin, folks, of the garden variety. That's what it is. It is sin that alienates you and separates you from the life of God. Have you forgotten so quickly what I read to you at the beginning? Remember that you were separated. 
You were at enmity with God. You didn't have peace with God. And sin is at the root of our alienation from God. And sin is the root of our alienation not only from God but from one another. Sin is the root of all of that. And it's a human tragedy. Sin has entered into this world and it's brought separation and it's brought alienation. It has brought that between you and God. And it's also brought that between you and your brother and sister in the Lord. Yet the Bible emphatically teaches that our God is a God of peace. But not the peace that the world offers. You remember when Jesus said that? We're talking about a peace that only Jesus can give you. And it's peace internal, internally. Uh, basically, it is peace with you being made right with God. That's what this peace is. Even at Christmas. Peace on earth. That means upon whose favor. That means the one whose favor, God's favor falls on that one. Because we know at Christmas time there's not peace. But there is if you're right with Jesus. Right? And that's what he's meaning here. So the Bible emphatically teaches that God is a God of peace. And God is on a mission to bring peace in this world. All of history yearns. All of creation yearns for this peace. And so does the people of God. So God is in the peacemaking business. He's going to do it with created order. He's going to do it with people he chooses to save. So he, of course, does it through redemption. Right? He's done this through the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only brings you peace and unity, but he also brings you together in the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings our church together. This unity is not possible apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings us peace with him, and he brings peace with one another. What an awesome reconciliation has taken place. And that reconciliation vertically, Romans 5.1, those who have been justified by faith now have peace with God. Now, vertically, if you have peace with God, think about how awesome it is for us horizontally. Whether you're Jew or Gentile or red and yellow, black and white, it doesn't matter what your color is, your distinction is, God brings all his people together in peace. If you don't have that, then you're not walking in the will of God. Not saying you're lost, but if you don't change it, you are. Right? If you're walking contrary to that understanding that God has brought you peace with Him, and therefore you have peace with one another. And here's the deal. You need to protect and preserve and promote the unity of peace that Christ Himself purchased for you on Calvary. Have you forgotten? Have we forgotten what Jesus did for us on Calvary in order for you to have that peace with God? How quickly we, we forget what it costs. Look, your peace that you have with God was bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's how you have the peace you have. And the motivation for us to maintain that unity eagerly and earnestly is the awesome price that the Son of God paid at Calvary. Now just stop for a moment and fix your mind on Calvary and think about the payment for your sin and think about Him bearing all of your sin debt and forgiving that sin debt. And how could we ever look at another brother or sister in this church and have awe against them? Are y'all listening? How can you ever walk around with an unforgiving spirit against anybody in this church because Jesus Christ the Lord took your place on Calvary bearing your sin so that you could have peace with God? And how dare we look at another brother or sister with envy and hatred and an unforgiving spirit because God brought you peace? That's good preaching, isn't it? I'm going to preach myself happy. You can't be... 
You can't be an unforgiving Christian. That's an oxymoron. You can't be an unforgiving Christian. Think about the price paid on Calvary for you to have unity with God. Think about that. Think about He purchased your peace by His blood. So, this is why unity is so important. Folks, factions and divisions and those things kill the church of the living God. Backbiting. Gossiping. And I haven't heard any of that around here. No, I haven't really. Seriously. Not yet. But I haven't been here long enough. Right? But folks, they're real. You've, you've got people... But I want you to look at the cross every time you're tempted to hate. I want you to look at the cross every time you, you think about holding a grudge against somebody or having an unforgiving spirit or this attitude. Pastor, he forgot about me. You know, those are real feelings, are they not? We, we, we feel uh, left out at times. And when you've got a church this large, there are different feelings that go around. Don't let the enemy steal you of your joy. Don't. Don't let the enemy wiggle his way in and cause disunity. I want to remind you that we don't create unity. But we're called by God to keep it. You can't manufacture it. External structures do not lend themselves to unity. That's not how you describe unity. Well, we've got a building over there and we come together. Uh, we meet. Well, you know, folks, there's a difference in a union and a unity. There's difference in being a union and having unity. Unity can only be given. Spiritual unity can only be given by God. As he, re, as he gives you birth and brings you into this church family. But a union, I mean, you can come together with all kinds of different things and beliefs and call yourselves a union. If you take two cats and tie their tails together and drop them over a clothesline, I'm telling you, you've got union, but you don't have unity. Right? you got a cat fight on your hands. What brings us together? The, it's not the external structures. It's the internal attitudes. Right? Gentleness, forbearance, patience. That's the attitudes that we have to have. If we're going to keep the unity. Here's what we've got to do. We've got to renounce self-centeredness. I mean, there may be people who need to be on the altar this morning. God, I renounce that self-centeredness. If we're going to ever promote unity the way God wants us to do it, we have to do that. We've got to renounce harshness if you're going to walk in gentleness. I mean, we can be that way, can't we? We can be so harsh because we think we know it all. And we have great theology. And you will have good theology if you come to this church. At least you're going to hear it. I don't know if you're going to apply it to your life. But you're going to hear the Word of God taught to you, and you're going to know what the Bible says, but we can be so harsh with it. We must renounce the tyranny or the tyranny of our own agendas in order to walk in patience. You can't be patient with people if you want your own agenda first. We must renounce idealistic expectations in order to walk in forbearing love. We must renounce indifference and passivity if we're going to keep the bond of peace with eagerness. Now, some of you would think, preacher, you ought to finish right here. But let me say... Uh, I probably should. But we are united in gospel confession. Just real quick. This won't take but a second. Folks, theology matters. Where does all this Christ-like character come from? Beginning in verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. 
this is the interesting thing about it. The unity that we enjoy in this church is Trinitarian. The unity that we enjoy in this church can only be brought together by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that verse 4 is the Spirit's verse? Verse 5 is the Son's verse. And verse 6 is the Father's verse. That's the unity. In other words, it's absolutely indestructible. That's the unity that our God gives us. Now consider the rest of the theology he gives us. I mean, we all come together as one body. That means there's no barriers. We're a living organism. Get the mentality out of your mind that we're an organization. Now we've got to have, organ we've got to have organization, but we're first an organism. We're alive in Christ Jesus. We're one body. We're one spirit. One spirit means he's the energizer of the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We've all been partakers of one spirit. And you can't be a child of God unless you have the spirit of God. We have one hope, meaning that our common hope is in Christ Jesus. Remember chapter 2, verse 12? We were without hope. But if you're in Christ Jesus, you now have hope. That's the, the blessing of what we've been given. And we eagerly await the return of our Lord, the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Then it says, one Lord. Unless you hadn't figured this out, his name is Jesus. We have one Lord. Acts 2.36, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10.12, for there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. If he's not your Lord, then you're not saved. We have one Lord. There's only one name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. Acts chapter 4. And his name is Jesus. And then the Bible says one faith. Here is the experience of knowing Christ. That's what's in view. It's referring to your personal trust in Jesus. Do you see what brings us together? The unity we have. One body. One spirit. One hope. One Lord. One faith. And then the Bible says one baptism. And here in mind is the word water, to be baptized. I like what Curtis Vaughn says. He summarizes Lord, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism in this manner. Listen, the point of the verse is that there is one Lord who is to be obeyed and adored. Amen? One believing experience that brings people into saving union with the Lord. For by grace are you saved through, right? And then one outward visible ceremony by which believers confess their faith openly and they're incorporated into the, into the fellowship of God's people. Remember, we preached on baptism. It is really the gospel made visible for people to see. It's a symbolic representation of what's happened in your life. And then the Bible says one God and one Father. There's no such thing as polytheism in Christianity. There's only one God in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the, Holy, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's no mysticism like that of Shirley MacLaine who said, Each soul is its own God. You must never worship anyone or anything other than self, for you are God, and to love self is to love God. She knows different from that today. Y'all know what I'm saying? She's learned that's not the case today. I promise you 100%. No, there's only one God who has revealed himself as the Father and who is, can, can only be believed in through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is above all things. <laughs> Folks, doctrine makes a difference, doesn't it? What we believe makes a difference. That's why he stopped and says, one faith, 
one Lord, one body, one baptism. Doctrine is important. The Marine Corps book of strategy says, Doctrine provides the basis for harmonious actions and mutual understanding. If you don't know what you believe, you're in trouble. As General George Patton once said, untutored courage is useless in the face of educated bullets. Y'all getting that? And we're so uneducated biblically in the world today in which we live. And there's no way we're going to stand against the enemy. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it and how to apply it to life. It won't be popular, but the church won't be healthy without unity. And the church can't be in unity without truth. And that's what the Bible teaches. We are united together in Christ-like conduct, and we're united together in gospel confession. There's only one gospel we offer people, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. One faith, one Lord, one body. Do you see the unity there? So, are we walking in unity? Is our church, are we walking in unity? This is, in essence, it's absolutely indestructible according to the way it's given here. First thing I want to remind you to do as we conclude is focus on unity. Everybody in this church, if you're a member, if you're saved by grace through faith and you're a member of this church, we need to focus on unity. The second thing is you need to focus on Jesus. He's our Lord and he's also our example of how to live out these characteristics that are given here. We ought to pray that God, that the Lord Jesus Christ will help us maintain the unity in this church ultimately to bring God glory. Third, we need to consciously ask the Holy Spirit of God to cultivate the character that is mentioned in this text. Can't you stand a little bit of humility and gentleness and patience and loving forbearance? Fourth, we need to be peacemakers. We must admit the absence of peace when there is none. And some of you may need to do that this morning. Because you don't have peace with God, number one, and we can take care of that. You can be saved today. But there's a good possibility that some of you in here are saved, but you don't have peace with your brother or sister and you need to take care of that today. We need to confess our culpability. If there is any, and all of us are culpable in some ways. To be a healthy church, you've got to have a healthy church body. In order to characterize ourselves as a healthy church, we need to be healthy church Christians. You've got to know Jesus, number one. You've got to know him genuinely, truly, really. And then, and only then, can you play the part that he has for you in this team affair at this church that's a whole lot more important than what KC will do in football today. This is going to last forever. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is eternal. Y'all do know that, right? And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Listen to Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have peace this morning with him? Are you saved? Jesus said, as many as received him, he gave them right to be children of God, even to those who believe upon his name. Do you know him? And second, if you know Jesus, how about your brother or sister? How about your relationships? The vertical may be absolutely fine. Well, yes, if you're a son, you're always a son. But the horizontal could be messed up today because of our sin. We need to get that right today. Amen. Everybody get that? Do I need to start over? All right. All right. Amen. Let's pray. God, you're good to us. 
And I'm thankful that David got it. Lord, I am. Lord, as I was studying this, Lord, you have to stop and you have to evaluate your life in reference to the cross. Lord, you always bring us back to the cross. And what you accomplished on Calvary, Lord Jesus, for us. God, how could I ever look at a brother or sister with envy or unforgiveness? Lord, when you paid the ultimate price for me to have peace with you. Lord, perhaps there are Christians in this building, and this sermon was for them. Lord, in a lot of ways, forgiveness is not to get the other person off the hook. It's to get us off the hook. Very rarely does the person know they've even offended us. And it's so easy to carry around a, a, a root of bitterness that grows so deep because of years and years of callousness and not thinking about the peace that you gain for us on Calvary. Lord, we have peace with you. We've been justified by you because of your blood and the price you paid on Calvary. Lord, I pray that this will be a service of healing for some, where they walk out of this room having gotten right with you and their fellow believers. Lord, I pray for the person who does not have peace with you, that's lost. Lord, your word teaches straightforward that to end this life on earth without having peace with you is to be consigned to a place of eternal torment called hell. It's real. But Lord, thank you that so much that you came down from glory to be the provision to save us from our sins. That the danger in John 3.16 will be replaced by a destiny in glory. Father, would you touch souls today as we have the invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.